Welcome to Gateway Community Church, Webster, Texas. We're so glad you found us, and we hope this message helps you discover more about God and His unique plan for your life. Well, good morning again. We're glad you're here with us this morning to celebrate the good news. As Betsy was talking a few moments ago, it struck me when she talked about being a thermostat or being a thermometer, that the temperature of the world around us is changing. Let me give you some examples. Recently, UCLA prohibited a graduating student from thanking her Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in her graduation speech. In 2011, the California State University system issued a new policy that required student groups that were recognized by the system to accept any student, any student, as a potential leader, regardless of whether or not their beliefs aligned with the group. In other words, a Christian group could have an atheist choose to come and be a leader in that group. That required InterVarsity Christian Fellowship to cease being a recognized student club at any of that system's 23 universities. And only this past June was the policy clarified so that while InterVarsity must still allow all students to apply for leadership positions, they can now use their own rigorous selection process that reflects their message and their mission in choosing those leaders. A Knoxville, Kentucky jury's decision was upheld by a federal judge that a public school can prohibit fifth grade Christian students from studying and discussing their Bibles during recess. A Florida ministry that has been providing food to the hungry in Lake City, Florida for 31 years was told that they would not be allowed to receive United States Department of Agriculture food unless they proceeded to remove portraits of Jesus Christ, a portrait of the Ten Commandments, a banner that reads, Jesus is Lord, and stop giving Bibles to those who receive food. A Florida professor started a formal disciplinary action against a student at Florida Atlantic University because he refused to write Jesus Christ's name on a piece of paper and then stomp on it. Though once word got out, the disciplinary action was halted. And Brandon Ike, a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, was recently named CEO of Mozilla. They are the company that brings us the Firefox um, uh, web browser, among others. This occurred in March 2014. And he pledged to ensure the internet company would remain a place that supported everyone, regardless of age, race, religion, gender identity, sexual orientation, and more. And yet a week later, Mozilla announced that Ike would be stepping down because 60 years earlier, as a private citizen, he had donated $1,000 to a political campaign in California that sought to ban same-sex marriage. Andrew Sullivan, a commentator who is gay and among the first to publicly defend same-sex marriage, wrote this, when people's lives and careers are subject to litmus tests and fired if they do not publicly renounce what may well be their sincere conviction, we have crossed a line. This, he writes, is the definition of intolerance. Folks, these are only a handful of the ways in which Christians in this country are discovering 
that there are a lot of folks around us today who are not very tolerant at all of Christian beliefs and practices. In fact, it seems kind of strange that in a, in a time and in a culture when tolerance is being lifted up as the highest value, it is offered to all except to Christians. In fact, just the opposite is happening. There is a growing intolerance toward followers of Jesus Christ. Some of you may not realize this, but there is more intolerance toward Christians today, at least here in America, than in any point in our lifetime. In our lifetime. Some of you may be 20 or 30, your lifetime doesn't stretch back so long, some of us a few more years than that. And we can honestly say, there is more intolerance in this time than in any we have seen. We're not only witnessing, but we are experiencing a culture shift. It seems that it's no longer enough that Christianity be removed from the public square, but now, increasingly, we're being asked to compromise our faith. There are more and more people and companies and even governments who hold that Christian beliefs, at least some of them, do not fit into an evolving, tolerant culture. We're seeing various practices that have been considered sin in the Bible now becoming accepted culturally. We're increasingly being seen out of step with culture, even archaic There are co-workers and friends and even family who do not understand us, leading to tensions in the workplace, sometimes tensions in our homes. We're seeing, some of us are experiencing verbal abuse and discrimination, and I say that because not because I have read about it, but because I've heard about it from some of you who have talked to me about your own stories, about what has happened in your workplace or in your school or in your neighborhood or in your family. We're seeing this, though typically here in America it has not gone to the level of physical abuse or physical suffering. Of course, in other parts of the world, Christians really are experiencing physical abuse, torture, suffering, even death for their their faith and beliefs we've seen. Uh, all of us probably have seen, maybe not watched the whole thing, but seen uh, ISIS parade out Christians who are in hoods who will be beheaded for their faith. And what we're seeing there is only an example of what is happening in many places around the world, not just simply in one little area of the Middle East, but across the world, there are places where a person converting to Christianity has committed an illegal act and can be tortured or killed for that decision. Now clearly, that is not the case here, nor would I expect that to become the case here in America. Yet things are also not the way they used to be. And for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus Christ, we need to be open and honest that there are consequences for that decision. What the Bible is typically called persecution or even suffering, though certainly not to the degree or in the manner of the way it is in some parts of the world. But the Bible has always affirmed this for followers of Jesus Christ. Paul wrote to Timothy Timothy saying, yes, and everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, will, not maybe. 
So how are Christ followers supposed to live in times like these? How far are we supposed to take things? What should be our attitude? Should we withdraw? Should we just drop out of it all? Fortunately for us, the Apostle Peter's first letter in the Bible addresses these very issues, and in fact, it serves as a practical guide and tool for living in these times. He talks about living in times when followers of Christ would experience consequences to some degree of suffering for their faith, yet not obviously to the degree that Christians are experiencing in some parts of the world today. He talks about our need to stay consistent about our beliefs and practices. Even when the world, even when those around us, even our coworkers, maybe even family members don't value them. See, Peter helps us understand not only how, but also he helps us understand the value of faithful living as followers of Jesus Christ, of not just talking the talk, saying, yes, I'm a Christian, but nobody can tell, but of walking the talk, of living that way, particularly in a culture that is getting more antagonistic toward that. So we're going to be walking through this letter Peter wrote, which the Bible calls 1 Peter, uh, starting in uh, the Sunday after next, next Sunday's Labor Day weekend, we will start the Sunday after Labor Day. It's a fairly short letter, only about five chapters long, yet it is crammed with practical insights into living in a culture that increasingly is not particularly friendly to followers of Jesus Christ. And this morning, I want to just take a few minutes to give us a little background, a little understanding of it, so we can see what Peter is saying and be able to better discern how this leader spoke not only to first century Christians, but is in fact speaking very poignantly, very directly to 21st century Christians in America. First Peter, then, is the first of two letters written by Peter in the New Testament, uh, and they have very original names, First Peter, Second Peter. They thought a long time about it. And like typical letters of the time, there is an opening greeting, the body of the letter, and closing remarks. And like any letter that's part of a, a larger and ongoing conversation, or like a phone call, if you ever had somebody else in the room who's on the phone and they're talking to somebody, you don't know who they're talking to, but you're listening to what they're saying and you're trying to figure out what the conversation is about based on what you're hearing on your side of the conversation. Well, the same thing is true in, in a letter like this. In the letters of the New Testament, we're seeing only one side of the conversation, which means we have to sometimes read between the lines to discern what are the issues, what are the concerns being addressed, and why. This letter was not, also, Peter didn't sit down to write it, and he said, you know, I want to write something that people 2,000 years from now are going to be thinking about and reading. Now, he was writing to people he was concerned about, Christians he was concerned about in his day and time. He was not thinking, I'm writing a letter that will be used for 2,000 years, though we know that has been the case by the, by the grace of God, and that was certainly God's intention. But it wasn't where he started. So Peter begins his letter very simply. This letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we know right off the bat, Peter is telling us, hey, I am the author of this. I am, the, I am a disciple, apostle, and, and I am writing this. 
just to be kind of clear with terms, a disciple was a follower, a student of Jesus who followed him in order to learn from him. And, and interestingly, when you start to read in the Gospels of Jesus calling his first disciples, he very consistently says to them, come, follow me. He doesn't say, come, learn. He says, follow me. Walk in my footsteps. Live life as I do. This is not about an, a one-hour class a week. This is about living life with me. That was his invitation then, and it continues to be his invitation today. But Peter also says he's an apostle. The, the Greek word apostolo, apostolos means one who is sent. And the title originally was given to the original 12 disciples, less Judas, who were sent out by Jesus to be his witnesses. He tells us in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, go and be my witnesses to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. As we read through the Bible, we find it was extended to, to a few others, to Paul, to James in the New Testament writings, and it would even later become a term for missionaries who were being sent out by some of those first churches. Now, interestingly, a few scholars have questioned Peter being the actual author of this letter, mainly because in spite of the, the claim we read right there at the beginning that Peter says, I wrote this, the, the Greek language that Peter wrote with was a very, the, the, this letter is in a very classic, formal, high-grade quality of Greek. It wasn't vernacular, it wasn't slang, it wasn't ordinary language. It was a very high level of Greek. And, and some have questioned whether a fisherman, a day laborer out there, could have figured out to be, in, in order to be able to write this way. And yet many other scholars, most scholars have argued, first, he had 30 years from the time he was living with Jesus till the time he wrote this. So there was, there's plenty of time there for some of that to change. And the letter gives us a, another piece of insight. Jumping over to the Chapter 5 in it, verse 12, it says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you. What he's telling us there is something that occurred throughout most of the letters in the New Testament. Most of them, if you go look at Paul's letters and you read through them, you will see that near the end of most of Paul's letters, he will, they'll be, you'll be reading along, and all of a sudden there'll be a statement, and I, Paul, write this myself, he says. In other words, it was not uncommon for these guys to have a scribe, to have someone who was gifted at writing, to write it down. And in the case of Paul, he tended to always take one little section near the bottom and he would write one sentence, one word or two, sign his name. It's kind of like saying, here's proof that this is from me. Peter didn't do that, but he tells them who was doing the writing. So there's no question about who's involved. He's not hiding the fact that someone says, hey, that doesn't sound like the Peter I know. Peter is saying, Silvanus did this for me. He tells us Silvanus and other translations, other places in the New Testament list his name as Silas, a name that is commonly seen through the book of Acts. He was the one who did the actual writing for Peter and may have refined Peter's language to some degree, though we know Peter, it would have been Peter approving it, and it would have been Peter's thoughts. You know, Peter can say something one way, and you say, how about if we say it this way? It might communicate a little better. And Peter will say, okay, as long as it keeps with my thought and, and the main point, I'm good with that. So 
Most believe that, that in fact, Peter is the author of this. Um, Peter's letter also doesn't give us any clear references as to when he wrote the letter. So scholars have had to dig into some of the details of the letter to try to determine it. Uh, again, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter seems to indicate he's writing from Babylon. Now, if you and I first heard the word Babylon, if we know anything about world history, we would know that Babylon was located in modern-day Iraq. However... In the first century, it was common that people who were down on Rome called Rome Babylon. Babylon had been a, a, a tyrant place that was taking over the world in its day and time 500 years earlier, and it had become very common for many people to refer to Rome as Babylon. And so we believe that this is a symbolic name for by the early church for Rome. Um, and we know from other sources that, that Peter didn't travel to Rome until later in his ministry, and tradition tells us that Peter was in fact crucified in Rome in the mid-60s. In fact, here is a picture. Uh, this is, we don't have the actual evidence. There's no firm evidence, but tradition tells us that Peter felt, who, who had who had. Um, run when Jesus was crucified, who had denied him three times, that Peter said when the time came for him to die, he felt unworthy to die as his Lord and Savior had died, and so he requested that he be crucified upside down. And so this is a depiction of that that comes to us down through tradition. There's no absolute proof, but there are enough evidences out there to tell us that that is probably what happened. Uh, a key event to dating the letter then is the burning of Rome. How many of you have heard of the burning of Rome? Who, who did the burning of Rome? Nero, right. Now, here's the thing about Nero. Nero, like most of these Roman emperors, was pretty cocky. And he wanted to leave his legacy. He didn't like some of the buildings in Rome. He wanted to build new buildings. But he couldn't just go and have some of them knocked down. And so... From number of sources, it appears, it's not absolutely proven, but it appears that Nero may very well have started the fire in order to clear out some of the older buildings so that he could build his new buildings to build his legacy so everybody could point to Nero and say what a great guy he was. We do know that he did not send people to fight the fires immediately after they began. We do know that in cases where the fires seem to go out, they seem to mysteriously restart again. And there are people who have said that they were recruited by Nero or his people to be arsonists who went out among the places of the city to actually restart the fires. Whether or not that's true, we know that Nero started to take some heat for the fires and the way it was handled. And so what did he do? He did what almost any of us might do when we're in a little bit of a pickle, we point to somebody else. They said it was the Christians' fault. The Christians were a fairly small sect uh, who had been considered a part of, of Judaism, but they weren't well known, they weren't well understood, and there were some, some rumors going on around about them. And so when Nero was able to start pointing the finger at them and say they were the responsible, all of a sudden people got in behind it. There is no evidence whatsoever that Christians had anything at all to do with it, and yet, beginning on the night of July 18th, the fire began, spread, 
and uh, continued for some time. And um, it's important for dating First Peter that we kind of have this understanding because the persecution that Peter is going to talk about in this letter that, that he mentions seems to be more of, a, of discrimination, more of some hostility, but not outright imprisonment, torture, or death. And that did begin shortly after July of 64 AD when the finger was pointed at the Christians. It began the first uh, empire-wide uh, uh, persecution and killing of Christians. And it was horrible. Uh, they did things like they would take people who had professed their faith in Christ, they would wrap them in animal skins, release them into the arena where, where uh, dogs or wolves or bears or cougars, or, or yeah, they weren't cougars, but um, cheetahs or whatever the case may be, would then attack them and literally tear them limb from limb. It was, it was horrible. And so when we look at Peter's letter, particularly in the, the second, cha second chapter, he instructs his leaders, readers to respect human authorities. And we see something like that. Again, remember, we have to sometimes read between the lines. It would be hard to imagine that he would be instructing Christians who are being persecuted and thrown into jail and killed to respect authorities if, if that was going on. So most scholars date this letter to the early or mid-60s prior to or at least before it got really going, Nero's official persecution of Christians. Peter does tell us who he's writing to. Uh, again, the very beginning of the letter, verse 1, this letter is from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm writing to God's chosen people who are living as foreigners in the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And here we have a map. Here's kind of the locatus. Here is Italy. Here is northern Africa. Here is Israel. Here is modern-day Turkey, and that's what we're talking about right here. Here is uh, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia. Now, let me say, today when we say Asia, we're thinking of the continent of Asia. 2,000 years ago, it was not yet called a continent, and this area of, of Western Tur what we call Western Turkey today was known as Asia. So when you read that in the New Testament, you're reading about this area, and then it goes on to Bithynia and, and creates kind of a circuit that you can kind of imagine someone carrying that letter to. So uh, modern-day Turkey is the location that the letters were sent to. The churches there were predominantly Gentile rather than Jewish. Uh, Jews at that point were considered those who were ethnically primarily Jewish. And therefore, most of us in this room, the vast majority of this room, probably 98, 99% of us in this room, would have been Gentile. Because Gentiles were everybody else. We do have a handful of individuals in our church who have Jewish history, Jewish background. But they would have been a much smaller number. And this would have been written primarily to the Gentiles. There's good indications from the way Peter wrote that he understood that and was writing to churches that were predominantly Gentile. And that the letter he wrote was probably carried by Silvanus or Silas around to the churches. First Peter was probably written to people in churches that Peter had not visited, had, did not know them. And was written probably to encourage and teach those Christians how to persevere in a world that was increasingly hostile to Christianity. He wanted them to see that their lives were a journey. 
and to know how to face the challenges of the time versus withdrawing from culture. It would be, it would be very easy if we start to see some problems, if we see people disagreeing, to say, oh, I'm just going to pull away from this. I'm going to go live on my little farm somewhere. I'm not going to have anything to do with this. But, but these early Christians were called, while true, called to be faithful, they were also called to be salt and light. They were called to be influences in the world around them. And so Peter emphasizes in this letter the importance of loving, of, of, of treating with love those around them, regardless of how they might treat them, so that they were always trying to do good in their settings. And Peter continued to encourage that, to be the ones that when a, a plague came in, when everybody would else would leave the town, it was the Christians who stayed and many times went into the town to help those that no one else would help. Those kinds of stories began to circulate. He wanted his readers then, and I would suggest to you now, to understand that there's hope. No matter what is happening around us, no matter where the world is going, no matter how much the culture seems to be shifting on us, that we are not at the mercy of the cruel forces of the world around us, that we can stand strong because we serve an all-powerful God, the God who created all there is. And what's more, this God entered into human experience through Jesus Christ, and suffered the worst that humanity could throw at him, who was crucified, dead, and buried, and still he was resurrected, and he triumphed. And Peter wants us to understand that those who follow him and act faithfully in challenging times can be confident, no matter what people are saying about us, no matter what's going on around us, that we too will triumph, even if we do have to deal with discrimination or suffering in the short term. So Peter, 1 Peter was written at a time when Christianity had begun to experience more intolerance, more discrimination, maybe the beginnings of persecution. Does that sound at all like our world today? See, it was intended to give those Christians hope. And yet at the same time, call them not to retreat from an increasingly hostile world, but instead engage it. With what? With what the world needed most then and now, with the love of Christ. Not to get even, not, not to run, not to do all the things that we can, we can think of but instead to live holy lives with integrity of our faith. In other words, to not just proclaim on Sunday morning that I'm a follower of Jesus, but also on Monday morning and Friday night. That my life, you know, that's the, the, the definition of integrity is that you're the same when nobody is looking. And the question a lot of times for Christians today is, are we willing to live with integrity, not just on Sunday morning, are we willing to say, praise Jesus, and I'm singing, and I'm here in church, but am I willing to demonstrate that at work tomorrow, in school this week, around some of my family who thinks I'm nuts, with neighbors 
who don't want to have anything to do with those Christians. See, it's, it's amazing how God's word never loses its authority or its power to speak into our lives today. It seems to me that the good news of this letter, it was, was so invaluable in the first century and it still speaks so loudly and powerfully to us in the 21st century. So let me say that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to be here as we walk through this letter. And if you're exploring Christianity, fantastic. What a great opportunity to learn about the, the, the way we're truly called to live versus the way sometimes it seems like culturally we do. Sometimes people say the number one reason I don't become a Christian is because of Christians. Why? Because there isn't integrity in some of our lives. There isn't faithfulness in how I live on Monday morning and Friday evening. We do it to ourselves. And it will become harder because we are in a world that is increasingly opposed to Christianity. I gave you a few examples. You could find hundreds of more quickly. So we'll start walking through this, not next Sunday, but the Sunday after that. And I want you to bring your Bible. It's because we're going to walk through it, the whole book. And either through a print Bible or through a, um, a mobile device, because you may want to take some notes. You may want to follow along. You may want to learn more than just what even I say in the midst of it. Um, my goal is certainly to walk us through it and, and preach on that, but, but my goal is also for you to become more comfortable and confident in reading it yourself and spending time with it. And so we're offering a journey group Bible study on 1 Peter and that not only walks through the book but will in fact teach you ways to study the book, teach you practices that you can use in 1 Peter but also in the Gospel of John or in the Psalms or other books of the Bible to give you insights in how to do that. Why? Because you and I aren't together 144 hours of the week. We're together for one hour. And we're together sometimes with a handful of other Christians in other places. But you and I need to daily be spending time with God to find the, re the nourishment and the, and the encouragement we need to hold the line and keep the faith and walk with integrity in a world that, that will challenge you and me at virtually every point. So we've got, to, we've got to learn how to do these things ourselves. If you wait on me, if you're dependent on me, you're going to starve. You're not going to go very far in what Christ can and wants to do in your life. I am just one part of what God wants to do with you. This church is a big part, but even the church cannot do it all for you. And let me say that if you can't or don't want to do that study, if you're in a journey group or you have some friends or some coworkers and you want to do a Bible study on First Peter during this on our website, gateway-community.org, on the Find It page, right up at the top, one of the headings, Find It, there's the, a Bible study that you can download on First Peter and participant guides. And you can do it yourself. You don't have to go through one of our 
particular groups. Your journey group can do it. Your, your life group can do it. Your friends can do it. Your family can do it. You don't have to wait on us. So we want to provide you with tools to enable you to do it yourself so that you can always be reading, always be studying, always be learning how to apply God's word to how you live today. And, and if you need to learn more about some of the basics of Christianity, I'm co-leading with some others a class that explores Christianity to help with the basic understandings of the faith. And, and we welcome any of you who want to come learn and explore. I had a letter just this weekend, an, an email. Someone said, well, you know, I probably have a lot of questions. Is it okay for me to come? And I, I said, absolutely. It is a place for questions. All of us have questions. I have questions. And so we want to explore. So, yes, Please, consider that among all the journey groups. Because the world around us may be challenging our Christian beliefs more than any of us have ever experienced. But let me remind you, it is nothing new for followers of Jesus Christ down through the centuries. It has happened before, and it will continue to happen again until Jesus returns. If we just think these are strange times, we're overlooking reality. It happened in the first century. And it happens today. And I want to tell you the interesting thing is churches have always flourished in trying times that folks have discovered they really can trust Christ. Why? Because when everything's going well, you can, kind of, you can kind of manage. But when things are tough, when life is going hard, and especially if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and your things that you believe are being thrown into question, you have a choice. I can either run from it or I can bear into it. I can grab hold of it. And those are the times when we grow the most. The church has always grown the most when it has been prevailed against, when it has been discriminated against, when it has been persecuted. We, we, we saw China when it was closed after World War II, and there had been a vibrant church there, and so many people thought, man, there goes the church, Red China, they're gonna, it's going to wipe it out. And several decades later, when China finally opened, we discovered that there was a vibrant Christianity of over 100 million believers who had been meeting illegally for decades. And their church was powerful. You know, maybe sometimes what we need in America as followers of Jesus Christ is a little challenge to push us to focus on the things that matter most. And maybe... Not my plan, but maybe the 21st century may just be pointing us to that. And maybe some of you will say, that's too hard. That's not what I'm in it for. I'm sorry if you feel that way. But some of you are going to say, this really is important. And I got to go further and I got to go deeper. And we're here to walk that journey with you. We're not here to just give you milk all your life. We're here to provide the meat of God's word to help you grow so that in difficult times, and they are here, you can stand firm and strong. You can stand up for your faith in appropriate ways and be an influencer. The world around us wants to see if those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ, if we're really committed and if we're really serious. It's time. And over the next several weeks, 
we're gonna challenge us how to do that. Rather than retreating from visibly following Christ, to be more intentional of walking the talk, of living out the love of Christ. Not, not revenge, not anger, but to respond to discrimination, to people who don't agree with the love of Jesus Christ. That is the single most empowerful tool in our hands to change the world. You and I can do that. In fact, God calls us to do that. So I hope you will join us. Our prayer team is gonna be here in just a moment. If you need to, if you need to bring Christ into your life, because it's, you're tired of playing the game of Christianity. They'd love to talk with you. If you want to recommit your life, they would love to talk with you. Because we're in, we're in uncharted waters in terms of most of our life experiences. But the good news is, God has been there, done that, and he knows how to get us through. Trust him. Gracious God, thank you that you are good, and there is nothing that you cannot work through, and you have an answer to everything that happens, and you can walk us through challenging times. Help us, Father, to be faithful. Find us faithful. Grow us. Enable us to study your word and to stand in confidence of who you say we are and not who the world says we are. And yet, Father, help us not to be adversaries, but be those who in love seek to transform this world. Not people who tear down, but people who build up, people who encourage, people who offer hope. Father, we have what every person on this planet is seeking. Help us to share that good news. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Go tell the good news. To learn more about us, visit www.gateway-community.org. Welcome to your journey.